Aloha and welcome to Conversations to Enlighten and Heal. Today my guest is Dr. Mario Martinez. Mario is a clinical neuropsychologist who lectures around the world about how our cultural beliefs affect health and longevity. Conversations is sponsored by HealthMasterySystems.com, Holistic Products for Body, Mind, and Soul, and PurePlantEssentials.com, Organic Aromatherapy. Please visit these websites today. My guest, Mario Martinez, is the founder of Biocognitive Science, a new science that identifies how our beliefs affect our immune, nervous, and endocrine systems. Mario is the author of the audio program, The Mind-Body Code, How the Mind Wounds and Heals the Body, which explores the dynamic relationship between our thoughts, body, and cultural history, as well as how you can use this paradigm of understanding to heal the mind and body. On today's show, Mario will discuss the mind-body connection from a cultural context and how culture gives rise to our biology. Mario has identified three cultural wounds prevalent throughout the world, the wounds of abandonment, betrayal, and shame, as well as how we can heal each of these three wounds. Hi, Mario. Welcome to the show. Hi. Thank you for having me on again. So, Mario, you are the founder of Biocognition. What exactly is Biocognition, and why is it relevant to our health and longevity? Um, I have to uh, invent the word to um, bring an understanding between cognition and biology, uh, because science continues to be fairly split between mind and body, although it claims that it's not. It talks about biological processes and talks about cognitive processes, then sometimes they bring them together, but hardly ever do they bring together cognition, biology, and culture. So biocognitive means biological, cognitive, within a cultural context. So biological could be uh, everything, emotions, anything physical, the nervous system, the endocrine system, the um, uh, immune system, and cognitive is the thoughts, the uh, memories, the symbols that we have, and what I uh, propose is that we are biosymbolic, meaning that all symbols have a biological correlate. We learn symbols from the beginning. We learn, for example, when you're hungry, uh, we, you learn that when the mother comes, you see the breast of the mother, that, that is a symbol, that is a, a view, it's an image. Later it brings words, but as you're learning that, you're having a biological response. You're having a biological response to the hunger, to the uh, satisfaction of the hunger, and, and that is how we learn biosymbolically. Later, we assume that words are just words, but our words have already been determined and shaped by a culture. A culture will shape how you view the world, so our perception is very cultural. Our perception is not something uh, unique uh, across uh, the universe, but it's just a very cultural, a very well-defined biosymbolic process. So an example would be, just so I can, I can land this and make it uh, very practical, because biocognition is very practical. In, uh, in Peru, the culture uh, considers that when a woman is going through menopause, they, when they're having the hot flashes, they call that bochorno, which translates to um, shame or, or embarrassment. Mm. We know in, in psychoneurology, what studies the, how behavior affects the mind-body process, specifically the, the nervous system, the endocrine system, and the immune system, we know that when a person is shamed or when a person is uh, um, 
made to feel or belittled or, or to be embarrassed, the immune system actually releases pro-inflammatory products, inflammatory products, as if you're having a wound. So taking that understanding and going to the Peruvian culture, you see that the Peruvian women, when they have the hot flashes, when they have the menopause symptoms, they have a high level of inflammation. That's culture. Then you go to another culture, which is the opposite. You go to Japan, where they consider that menopause is called the second spring. It doesn't have any negative connotations. So the second spring is, a, is an opportunity for a woman to learn a new wisdom. There's no shaming. There's no embarrassment. And you, you measure the inflammatory products of a Japanese woman during the menopause, and it's normal. So that is one of the best examples of, of, of explaining how culture can shape your biology and biology can shape your culture. Oh, that's excellent. Let's talk about worthiness and empowerment. How are these two related? Uh, worthiness has to be with, with the level of uh, valuation that you give yourself. And the empowerment, uh, you cannot be empowered without the valuation. You can have power over other people, but that's not empowerment, that's power. Empowerment is very specific and is very powerful as far as the immune enhancing process that it has. I work with uh, Fortune 100 companies uh, working with the executives and, and with the uh, um, cultures that they create. And one of the things that we see is that most companies are not empowering their employees. They talk about the mission statements and the, and the vision statements, but basically the culture that they create, the culture that they communicate with, how they implement that, that mission and that vision is very disempowering. And one of the ways that you can disempower people is by giving them a task without meaning mm -hmm. or giving them responsibility without authority. And that's basically what we do in most corporations. You give somebody a responsibility and then you don't give them the authority to go to the resources that they need. Well, the immune system does the same thing. The immune system functions by giving responsibility to the, to the lowest uh, um, uh, cell. In fact, the empowerment code is, a, is the equivalent of biocognition that we use in, in corporations. And I use how the immune system makes decisions. I use that system to teach the Fortune 100 companies how to actually organize themselves like the immune system does. It can make hundreds of thousands of decisions under turbulence um, without any consultation with the brain. Mm -hmm. So it's a very decentralized system. Yes. And your question on, on empowerment and, and, va and valuation, in biocognition we look at three levels of um, self-esteem. Usually self-esteem, you talk about how you value yourself, the validation that you give to yourself, but seldom do they go beyond that. What I do in biocognition is I talk about the valuation that you give yourself, how worthy you think you're, you are about receiving especially good things, how worthy do you think you are about good uh, future in your life. But the second that I talk about is the level of affiliation that you have. The affiliation that you have means who are the people that you associate with to share that valuation? Who are the people that actually enhance your life and, and, you, and you share that with? You could have a very high level of um, valuation and a very low level of um, um, the, uh, the, the connection with other people. The third one is competence, and you'll see how they come together in a second. Competence is how good you are at what you do. You could have a very high level of competence and not a very high level of valuation, 
And this is, you can see it, for example, in a, a CEO who runs a multi-billion dollar company, and he or she comes home and gets shamed by the, by the partner or, the, or husband or wife. Uh, so they have a high level of competence and a low level of valuation. So self-esteem is a cluster of valuation, competence, and affiliation. And those three things are the components that make a person feel worthy of what they do, and especially worthy of good things. And later in the program, if we have time, I'll, I'd like to talk about the danger of joy and the danger of good fortune, mm -hmm. <laughs> which appears to be something illogical, but it, it's very, very, uh, uh, very practical to know the, uh, the process. Yes, well, I appreciate how clear you are. I mean, you're really giving good examples of all of these. They seem kind of complex concepts, but you're making it very clear and practical for us. So how does one develop a sense of worthiness, and can it be learned in adulthood? Uh, well, you always have to go back. When, something, when you're trying to fix something, you, you have to go back to see how it broke. Otherwise, you're trying to fix something, and you're covering it up, you're band-aiding, and you're not fixing the, the actual loss. So one of the things that we do is look at what are the wounds, as you mentioned, the archetypal wounds. And I call them archetypal because I've studied most cultures in, in five continents and found that the good news is that you can, you can only be hurt three ways, in three different ways. And that is, as you mentioned, abandonment, betrayal, and shame. And you have to go back to find out what actually robbed you of your self-esteem. Was it an abandonment wound? Was it a, a, a betrayal? Was it a shaming? It's not just when something happens once. We're very resilient. But when you have a pattern of abandonment, for example, emotional abandonment or physical abandonment or a pattern of betrayal or a pattern of uh, shaming, then what happens is that that wound doesn't allow you to gather information to confirm that you're worthy. So you have a wound. And no matter what happens to you, a part of you has already been pre-programmed and, and pre-processed so that you don't accept the good things because you are shamed or because you're betrayed or because you're abandoned. So you have to go to the, the, the where it broke, begin to work on the wounds, and then uh, I can talk about, elaborate later on, if you like, on, on the actual healing process. But you have to find out what they are, and we all have them. Uh, once I was giving a lecture at the, for psychologists, and psychologists, you know, they're very anal in the sense that they have to analyze everything, and I'm a psychologist myself. And I forgot one of the wounds. I said, well, there are three wounds. There's abandonment and there's betrayal. And I forgot the other one. And one of them said, oh, you must have that wound then because you forgot. And I said, no, don't worry. I have all three of them. So it's nothing to worry about. Uh, so, uh, but but the, the key is that you have to identify which is yours. And it's so interesting that you have a psychoneurological response different to each of the wounds. You have a different temperature each of the wounds. So for example, if you have a wound of abandonment, when you go to the wound of abandonment, you can do it under relaxation and, and a contemplative state so you can actually go to the moment, you're going to feel cold. It's a coldness. Your body will feel cold. What's happening is you're constricting your vascular system and you're taking the blood away from, from the periphery and you're, you're getting cold. When you are abandoned, it's a coldness. It's a fear of not knowing someone who is supposed to be there is not there. Very early in life we can have that happen to us. That's that, in fact, that's the most primitive of, of, of the three. Mm -hmm. you, can't, you can't shame a child till they have an identity. For example, until a child can look in himself or herself in the mirror and say, that's me, which means that they have an image, an ego, you can't shame them. 
have to have that level of cognition. And you can't betray until you know that you are a person by looking at yourself in the mirror. But you can certainly abandon. You can leave a child alone and the child dies. So it's the most primitive of the three. The other one, um, embarrassment or shaming. You notice when people are shamed, they turn red. Mm-hmm. That's an immunological response. That's an, uh, it's a, an endocrinological response. It's responding as if you're actually being wounded. You're having, you're opening up your, your the, it's the opposite of abandonment. You're opening up your vascular system. You're opening up histamines and you're opening up uh, IgEs and all kinds of immunological processes as if you had a, uh, an allergy. And that temperature is hot. You notice that when people are, are embarrassed, they, they look hot, they turn red, and they have inflammation when, when they're having a sense of um, an experience of, of uh, shaming. And when you go to betrayal, betrayal, a person also gets hot, it's a hotness, but they get angry rather than shaming and, and wanting to hide and wanting to disappear from the world. So they're all three, they're different. They have different physiological, phenomenological responses, and those are the three that I've been studying for the last 15 years mm-hmm. across cultures. So speak a bit about how the meaning we give to situations, how that plays into this, you know, how, how that plays into the effect on our biology. Uh, yes, because uh, the meaning becomes, it's a symbol, a word, it's a symbol, but it becomes biosymbolic because the word has effect. For example, you're told that uh, in your culture that to go out in the rain, you'll catch a cold. Go out in the rain, you'll catch a cold. Those are words. Those are symbols. Mm. But what happens if it comes from an authority, a mother, a father, a teacher, that in a sense to, uh, it's an evolutionary process that, that if an authority tells you something, it must have value. Therefore, that word becomes an alarm. When you hear that word, there's an alarm system that allows you to secrete cortisol, just as if you're seeing a, a, uh, a lion. So what happens? You go out in the rain and your mother says, don't go out in the rain, you'll catch a cold. And you go out knowing, you may defy it intellectually, but knowing biosymbolically that it's not good, that it's an alarm. What happens? Your body begins to respond with, with a fight or flight. Cortisol is released. Cortisol inhibits immune function. So any virus or any bacteria that's going around, you most likely will catch it. You come home and you have a cold. Mm-hmm. So you see, it's, it's about symbolic processing. So we have to be very careful with what we say, especially people in authority like doctors and psychologists, and when they tell you you have six months to live or there's no cure for this. There are other ways of saying things without sentencing people. Mm-hmm. So those people in authority, we give them power we give them power and they're they're what I call the culture editors they edit your life they tell you how good how bad you are what you can what you cannot do I've seen patients immigrant patients who uh, tell me their stories and they tell me they're from uh, places in uh, very poor countries in Latin America and they tell me my father uh, uh, a woman will say my father told me that uh, that we were never going to be able to, to have anything. We were poor, and poor people really don't have a right to anything. Poor people are there to serve other people. So with that admonition, imagine how difficult it would be for that person to, uh, to succeed. And when they do succeed, most likely they sabotage 
so they can go back to the tribal beliefs that told them that they were unworthy because they don't have any socioeconomic status. So I love uh, how original your language is uh, for explaining things to us. Uh, can you describe the difference between an intellectual and an embodied experience and the difference between the two? Yes, that's very important because uh, sometimes if you do just uh, cognitive processes, what you're doing is you're just, you're just moving things around in your head. We don't learn things in our head. We learn things in our body and in our head. That's why it's biocognitive, not just cognitive or biological. So embodying means that you experience what I call the felt meaning. The felt meaning is actually the manifestation of the word in your body. So if somebody says, you're an imbecile, you might get upset and everything, but you're not really looking at how that was manifested in your body. So how do you embody it? How do you find the felt meaning? You go to your body and you observe how you're manifesting that word that was told to you, you're an imbecile. And by doing that, you're identifying how your body responds, you're identifying what it is that it's doing, and then simply, rather than get rid of it, you don't want to get rid of the storm, you go into the storm. You go into what you're feeding in the body and, and observe rather than try to do anything. Observe and breathe. And what you're doing in a biosymbolic way is you're cleaning out that process without intellect. If you say, oh, I'm, I'm, this doesn't bother me, oh, I'm, it's okay, I can understand. Forget it. Your body will not buy that. Mm. It has to be embodied. It has to be a felt meaning that you can identify. And, and this is very complex psychoneurological neuroscience processes, but they're so simple to fix once you know the process, and you fix it by observing and paying attention to it, going into it rather than running from it, mm -hmm. and letting your body dissipate by itself. It's amazing what will happen when you do that. Mm -hmm. And you don't have to buy anything. It's not in a, in a pill. It's not in a bottle. It's, it's within you. It's your own pharmacy. So how is our belief related to the experience of embodiment? Well, the, you, you may have a belief, and that belief uh, could be an intellectual belief that you have, uh, for example, you believe that, uh, <clears throat> that you are unworthy. And the belief could be you're unworthy because you think you're unworthy or because you were told that you were unworthy. But all you know and all you become aware of is the actual intellectual process. I'm unworthy because people don't like me. See, it's a cognitive process. And to resolve that, you can't, in a cognitive way, you can't resolve it. You can't just say, I'm worthy, I'm good. You can't reason it out because it's not a reasoning process. It's a biocognitive process. So how do you do it? What you do is you, you identify the evidence that was given to you or the admonitions that were given to you to tell you that you're unworthy. One day you fell uh, riding your bike and, and, and your dad says, you're so clumsy you can't do anything. So you have evidence that you fell and you have the words that say that you fell. So you take that evidence and you generalize it into everything else. So what happens is your perception becomes very selective to finding what's wrong with you. You may be riding a bicycle for three hours, but if you happen to fall for five minutes, that's the evidence that you use mm -hmm. to confirm the perceptual belief that was given to you. So one of the things you do is you have to learn who were the editors, who were the culture editors that, that, that told me who I am? Mm -hmm. And how can I begin to find evidence to define what I was told, that I'm clumsy, 
Well, I'm clumsy, and yet I can practice karate. How is that possible? Well, that's evidence. You see, that's not thinking, that's evidence. How does it feel when I practice karate? That's embodying it. And that embodying is what begins to gradually change the symbol that you created about mm-hmm. being clumsy. And it could be about anything. It could be clumsy, it could be anything. Bad at math, bad with uh, directions. I was told that I was bad with directions, and I bought it for many years, and I would, no, I'm not, I'm not good with directions. No, I'm not good with directions. And I would confirm that every time I got lost. Mm-hmm. So finally I said, wait a minute, wh- where did this come from? Found the source, began to look for evidence. Every day I could get myself around without anybody telling me. So that evidence is a felt meaning also. That evidence began to change my sense of having a bad sense of direction. So it has to be biocognitively learned and biocognitively recontextualized. Mm-hmm. New context. Great example. In your audio program, The Mind-Body Code, you present the idea that illness is learned. How is this so, and what is the mind-body code? Okay, in, in medicine, we're, we're, we're taught uh, a, a genetic helplessness. You have certain genes, you have a DNA, it's a, a blueprint, and that's an expression of the, of the genes, and that's it. And that's what it is. You have cancer in the family, well, you're most likely going to have cancer. And all of that is not scientific. That's not scientific. That's just a repetition of words that become a reality. But then some people will say, well, yeah, but it's true. Look at the family. These people, 10 in the family and 8 have cancer. Well, they have the propensity for cancer. They have a genetic predisposition for cancer. How that's expressed is based on the environment and the belief system that they have. So how do you learn an illness? Let's say a cancer, for example, is a helplessness type of illness in addition to the genetic predisposition. Uh, people with cancer, uh, they even have what they call a C personality, a, a cancer personality, are people who are um, caretakers, people pleasers, a lot of fears about life, they don't know how to set emotional limits, and several other things. So what happens when you do that? You also have an immune system that doesn't set good limits. You have a neurological and endocrinological system that doesn't respond with strength when you're wanting to set limits. And I'll give you some scientific examples in a second. But what happens is you're teaching your immune system to be to, to be defenseless, you're teaching your uh, nervous system to be defenseless, and you're teaching your immune system to be defenseless. So a specific example, um, my mentor, George Solomon, who was the one who actually coined the word psychoimmunology, mm-hmm. and then later Bob Ader called psychoneuroimmunology, and that's what is known now as psychoimmunology, which would be PNI. Um, he did some research with uh, HIV-positive men. And as you know, uh, the virus attacks a very specific immune cell. It's called the CD4 cells. It's a T cell, and it's, a, it's called T helper, CD4. And he found that the men who had the highest level of self-esteem, although they were infected, also had the highest level of CD4 count, which means that they would live longer than the ones who didn't have the uh, high levels of self-esteem, and especially setting limits. They knew how to set limits. So therefore, my model of the immune system is the immune system is not a protector. It's a confirmer of the reality that you live. It's a confirmer of the consciousness that you live. And I could give you Mm -hmm. many, many more examples, but that's one that's classical. Mm -hmm. So speak a bit more about how boundaries are related to illness. Um, 
when you don't set good boundaries, for example, you could be exhausted without setting good boundaries. You could be holding a lot of anger if you don't set boundaries. You could be dealing with a lot of fear if you don't set boundaries. Simple example, somebody says, uh, could you work Saturday? And you've been planning a special dinner with your partner, an anniversary, and, you, and out of fear, you say, well, okay, sure, I'll be there. I, I had, a, had some, something to do, but I'll be there. What happens? Resentment, anger, fear to have to tell your partner that you're not going to do it. A, a, a cluster of emotions that actually secrete very toxic um, chemicals, molecules. And if you do that as a lifestyle, what happens? You say no here, okay, 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 okay. And after a while, then you become a person who doesn't have boundaries. You don't know who you are anymore. Mm -hmm. You're a people pleaser. And one of the things that I found, that excellent evidence, you know I've worked a lot with centenarians, people who live over 100, and now with what they call the super centenarians, who, who are people who live over 110. And there are uh, some in the U.S. alone, there are over 80,000 centenarians. And one thing about centenarians, independent of other cultures, they know how to set limits. They try to help, but they have limits. Mm -hmm. I was interviewing one, and I... Uh, was asking him if I could uh, talk to him. Uh, he said, sure. I said, I'm really interested in, in, in how people your age are able to, to, to do so well and, and be so intact cognitively and so forth. And he said, sure. Let's, uh, when, when do you want to meet? I said, how about Saturday afternoon? And he said, no, I'm sorry. Saturday afternoon, I'm going dancing. It'll have to be another day. That's setting limits. You see, that, that's, the kind of, that's the kind of person that actually lives with health. That's the kind of person that doesn't deteriorate. Now, it doesn't mean to be selfish. It means to be self-caring. There's mm -hmm. a difference. What is the valuing you were talking about earlier? I'm sorry, what? Valuing oneself. Yeah. Valuing oneself. That's right. If you yes. don't value yourself, then you're there to serve. But you're there to serve at your expense. Mm -hmm. a, a great example was, you know, when you're flying, they, they tell you that if there's a, a pressure change, that, uh, that a mask will fall, and if you're with a child or someone who is uh, incapacitated, you have to breathe first before you help the other person. Mm -hmm. That's an example of how you have to breathe first before you can help somebody breathe. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, you pass out and you can't help the other person. Yes, so how can we apply biocognition to relationships? In, in biocognition, I use a model I call uh, guardians of the heart. And Guardians of the Heart goes pretty much against uh, biocognition, as you know, is very revolutionary. It, it was based on the frustrations that I felt and what science had to offer. It has a lot of good things to offer, but it also has a lot of things that are very limiting. And, and you read a lot of books that tell you, well, why don't you start compromising? One day you do this, you hate going to the movies, and, uh, and, and your partner hates to go to shows. Well, one day why don't you go to the show, and then next time you go to, it doesn't work. Because when you're doing what you want to do, you're going to feel guilty, and the other person's going to feel resentful that they have to do it. So it's not a, uh, a compromising, accounting, quid pro quo kind of thing. It is identifying your needs, identifying the needs of your partner, and then when you have things that you want to do, you do them by yourself, or you do them with your friends, and then you create a ritual that you do with your partner that's better than either of the two things that you like to do. And what happens, what I've seen is that as you create that ritual, 
the other is not as important anymore. You still do it, but you get so excited about the new ritual that you can share with your partner that the other loses some of the value that it had before. Because if you start defending what you want to do, the value goes up because the mm-hmm. option is taken away. Anytime you've, you've taken an option away from someone, the value goes up, not because you think the thing is better, but because you've, you've, been, you've lost the option to make a decision. And in psychology, we know very few things, but one of the things that we know for sure is that options equals freedom. Mm-hmm. The more options, the more freedom. When you take options away, the freedom goes down. That's one example. Another example is that you go into a relationship to heal your wounds, not as victims, but as wounded heroes. And you go into your relationships knowing that you have wounds. Not everybody has them, but most people do. And you identify them, and then you identify the healing fields that the relationship can actually use as a, as a joint consciousness and begin to heal. So let's say your partner has a, a wound of uh, abandonment, and you have a wound of, of shame. Well, you know that abandonment requires commitment, and you also know that shame requires honor. So what do you do? You create a relationship where the consciousness revolves around honor and commitment. And what happens? You're healing each other's wounds. That's mm-hmm. why guardians of the heart, you give your heart to your partner, and your partner gives his or her heart, her heart to you for you to guard it, for you to protect it. But at first, it's difficult because at first, you know, we're not used to that. At first, what we do is we manipulate people without knowing mm-hmm. it with their wounds, mm-hmm. when we're angry especially. But as you learn the process, then you learn that not, you're not only healing the wounds, but you are guarding each other from further damage. And uh, it doesn't mean you're not, you're not going to have fights or disagreements. It's not that. But what it means is you're, you're growing, you're evolving as two individuals, mm-hmm. and the love becomes deeper, and your partner becomes really a co-author of health and a co-author of, of the kind of abundance that you want in your life. And it sounds like a very sacred type relationship that you're talking about, you know, this guardians of it the is, heart. Yeah. Yes. It is. So what is the tunnel of helplessness that you discuss in biocognition? Oh, that's a good question. You asked some great questions. Uh, the tunnel of helplessness is, uh, it could be a tunnel of helplessness uh, with religion, with medicine, anything. Uh, we have the authorities, as you know, that... that Let's say the tunnel of helplessness with, with medicine. They tell you, um, this is the kind of illness that you have, and statistically, you're going to live six months, and this is what's going to happen. They've already put you into a tunnel of helplessness. They have given you information about group statistics uh, applied to an individual. Mm-hmm. And the science of it, so to, to argue the science of it, because I always want to bring the science into it, is that when you look at a normal curve, a Gaussian curve, you see that in the middle is, is where you have the, um, the, the mean and, and, and you have the mode and so forth, and that's where most things happen. That's kind of the average, and then you have standard deviations going on both sides. On the left side of the tail, you have information. On the right side of the tail, you have information. But in science, you don't look at that. You only look at the middle. You do analysis of variance. You do analysis of, of, of um, averages. So what happens is if you, in the middle, let's say you have a particular illness, illness X, and on the average, people live a year with that illness. But if you go to the left side of the curve, people live two months. If you go to the right side of the curve, people live 10 years. On the left side, you have the learning of an illness. On the right side, you have the causes of health. 
and in the middle you have the average uh, sick person. Hmm. So what is contemplative neuroscience and how does it relate to the theory of biocognition? Contemplative neuroscience is, uh, is really very compatible with uh, biocognition and in fact we use a lot of research. Uh, Richard Davison has done a lot of research in that area uh, and uh, um, Alvaro Pasquale Leone, he's done a lot of research also in the uh, neuroplasticity of the brain but Richie Davison especially has found that num number one, that the, that the brain is very plastic, that the brain can readjust itself but what we used to think that for example that only the limbic system had the emotions and only the limbic system and the emotions because the limbic system is primitive the emotions are primitive and the cortex was very, very sophisticated and the cortex is really where the cognition uh, is found well with the research that uh, that Davison has done with uh, Tibetan lamas uh, uh, including uh, the Dalai Lama and so forth he has found that the cortex actually has a lot to do with emotions and this is where biocognition comes in. It's not just cognition, but biocognition. So, for example, when a person is depressed, the prefrontal lobe is the part of the, uh, right, right above the, the eyebrows, is the, the frontal lobe, the prefrontal lobe, right under it. And when people are depressed and you, you, you have them um, uh, uh, examined with an, uh, what's called a functional MRI, which actually shows you in vivo, in real time, how the brain activity is going, you see that the activity is mostly on the right side, on the prefrontal lobe, on the right side of the frontal lobe. As people get, as people improve from the depression, or, or as people go into meditations, actually the activity goes from the right side to the left side of the brain. And a study that was very interesting, so you can see the effect of placebo and the effect of beliefs. They had one group of people, they were, they were given an antidepressant. Uh, they were all depressed uh, and they had the controls and everything but the, the group uh, the depressed group one group got a placebo which was uh, just a sugar pill and another group got the actual antidepressant and they found they looked pre-treatment uh, that mostly people did have activity on the right side of the, of the prefrontal lobe and the frontal lobe because that's what you find with depression so then they looked at the six weeks later which takes about that long for, for it to become therapeutic uh, blood levels and so forth. They found that the people who took the antidepressant showed, most of them showed that that had gone to the left as it should. But the striking results that they found were that the people who took the placebo also had the MRI show activity on the left side of the brain. So not only if you believe something, not only do you believe it, but your biology begins to respond to your belief. So you described earlier the immune system as a biosymbolic confirming system. What exactly does that mean? There it means that it's going, confirm, it, it's going to confirm the consciousness that you live. It's going to confirm how uh, you set limits. It's going to confirm uh, the example that I give you on the uh, on the menopause. Um, that's that's an immunological. Uh, endocrinological response. An example, uh, people who in, in, uh, in Bolivia, they have three levels of socioeconomics. And, and those three levels will show, for example, that the, uh, 
that the that the the highest level is the whites, the whites that that never fixed that never mix with the uh, with the Indians. Then you have the mestizos, who mixed white and Indian, and then you have the Indians or the natives, and those are the three socioeconomics. If you're a white and you have what we would call in in Occidental medicine, what we call anemia, you simply go to the doctor and the doctor treats the anemia and you're fine. If you're white or if you're a mestizo, because the mestizos identify with the whites more than with the lower. All right? But if you are an Indian and you have the same symptoms of anemia, they call it limpu. And limpu, according to the shaman, which would be their doctor, is a terminal illness that comes, here's the etiology, here's the cause of this illness. In Occidental uh, medicine, it's a, a loss of blood. And their medicine is the spirit of a newborn who dies, and that spirit stays on earth and inhabits the, the body of the person who has the limpu and consumes that body, and it goes to another body, and it's terminal. Mm. If you are a mestizo or a white, you can be cured of um, anemia. If you're an Indian, and if you have limpu, you die independent of what they do. But here's the most striking thing. In the 1950s, um, the Bolivian government had a, an agrarian reform. They gave land to the Indians to help them socioeconomically, so they went up a step, and actually they went up higher than the mestizos. So guess what happened to the mestizos who were immunized to the anemia? When they had anemia and they dropped to the level of the Indian, they also had terminal uh, costs if they have limbo. So see, it's an identification mm -hmm. and your immune function responds mm -hmm. according to the cultural identification that you give it. Mm -hmm. And that comes from anthropology. One of the problems of psychoneurology is that it doesn't look at the, at the cultural context. It does most of the work in the lab. And some of the work is done with rats, some is done with people. And, and rat research is fine as long as the responses are interpreted as coming from animals that cannot find meaning in what they do and who are not aware of their mortality. Those are very important components. And if you extrapolate with that without considering that, you're making a mistake because people are not rats. Mm -hmm. so, so far in our conversation, what seems to be primary is this idea of embodiment. And another word that really comes to mind is you know, being honest and truthful uh, with ourselves about the reality of our situations and how we're responding. So, I, you know, I find that, I mean, would you say, you know, what your, your work is really, you know, about really connecting, you know, that mind-body connection, I guess, you know, it's the, that word embodiment and the truth of yes. what you're embodying exactly. seems you're primary. Embodying the mind-body, yes. I, I gave a lecture in, uh, in Ireland a few years ago, and the, the title of the lecture was, Does Your Immune System Have Morals? And it does. It's a, it's a bioethical system, and, 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 and by cognition, bioethics is not just the, uh, the humane treatment uh, of uh, ethical treatment in medicine, but it's literally the biology of moral behavior, the actual biology of moral behavior. So it becomes a thing in itself. Bioethics becomes a biological process based on the moral behavior that you have exhibited. Mm -hmm. This is why this is based also in a simple example would be uh, the polygraph. When you lie with a polygraph, you're violating some kind of 
a process that goes against what you believe and they can identify the lie unless you're a sociopath who doesn't have that process and sociopaths can can lie and, and pass polygraph tests mm -hmm. but if you're fairly normal you won't pass it if you lie well what does that mean that means your your physiology goes along with the belief systems that you have about what is true and what is not true mm -hmm. and what is ethical and what is not ethical now is that whether you're conscious of your beliefs or unconscious that's or? right Okay. That's right. You don't have to be conscious. It, it, it's a uh, it's a bioinformational field. I call it a bioinformational field that you don't have to be conscious of it. Uh, there, there was I had a patient who who was um, uh, abused by a family member, and uh, and for years and and usually when when children get abused, they're usually abused uh, and and have parents who one of the two has been abused, so it's kept uh, in the secret and. And she um, told her mom, and her mom, her mom told her that uh, that no, that really, that really wasn't happening, and uh, you know, just like kind of a, mm -hmm. a denial of reality. So, what happened is that when she turned 15, the grandfather who had actually abused her killed himself. He he hung himself. Uh, what was going on is although he was a child molester, he was a pedophile, mm -hmm. there was still some ethical system that was eating at him. Finally, symbolically, on her birthday, uh, he killed himself. Mm -hmm. And I can give you many, many examples of, of the, the bioethical process, but that's just an example. And, and what, it, what it means is we have to be careful with our behavior. We have to be careful with what we say, and we have to be careful with what we do, not in an obsessive way, but most of what we do should be related to our ethical system, mm -hmm. and most of what we do should be related to our honorable behavior. Mm -hmm. um, in fact, honor, we're doing research now to uh, look into honor as an anti-inflammatory process. Mm -hmm. uh, clinically, we've been able to show it, but now we're going to be measuring uh, interleukins and, and other pro-inflammatory molecules to actually be able to show that the consciousness of honor can be anti-inflammatory. And many people who have inflammatory illnesses like rheumatoid arthritis have some um, origin of, of shaming in their in their lives. Mm -hmm. So you already mentioned you've worked with centenarians in five continents to develop your theory of health and longevity. What have you found in working with centenarians? What are some other things that can help us at any age? Well, there were two populations that, that allowed me to learn about what I call the, the mind-body code. One was the centenarians, which is the people that, that have, they know longevity, whether they know it consciously or not. And two, the stigmatics, which, which is a very, very rare case. And I think we've talked about this before, but these are people that develop the wounds of Christ, and these wounds don't heal, and they don't get infected. So it's how the mind wounds and heals the body, and how the mind-body can, can live over 100 years. So those two put together gave me a sense that, that we do have coding. We have mind-body codings that we do. And we're the centenarians, to answer your question. I learned several things about them. Number one, as I mentioned, they know how to set limits. That's a mind-body code for health, setting limits. When you don't know how to set limits, you don't pick up the cues of exhaustion for example you may be exhausted 
and you deny it so much that you desensitize yourself to cues of exhaustion and you could be exhausted and, and you have to drop dead or you have to drop with, a, uh, with pneumonia to stop. The body stops you. So they know how to set limits. Another one that's extremely important, they know how to forgive, not intellectually, but they know how to forgive mind-body. Also, they see themselves as people who are gaining knowledge and they are a source of knowledge for their community and it happens that their community supports that. Their community sees them as a, as a source of knowledge. What do we do with people in our society after 65? You can't do anything else. You have to retire and go to Florida and watch the sunset. And on the average, you live another four to five years if you do that kind of uh, um, non-meaning. You see how the meaning comes yeah. in. Meaning very important. Empowerment very important. You and, and, and now you tell yourself, yeah, I was a CEO and I worked 70 hours a week and now I'm going to be really fine because I'm going to just go to the, I'm going to go to Bimini and I'm going to sit, in, or I'm going to go to Bora Bora and I'm just going to sit around and do nothing. Paradise. They get sick. Why? Because they may have been working 70 hours, but it had meaning in what they were doing. Now they're just sitting and watching. Now it doesn't mean that it's going to happen to you. There, there are ways of transitioning into, into paradise, but you don't transition into paradise by giving up meaning mm -hmm. and vegetating because you're setting yourself up for, for failure. So let's talk about the three wounds you've identified. Abandonment, betrayal, and shame. You say these three wounds exist worldwide. How did you discover these three wounds and how can we heal them? Because as, as I was doing field work, anthropological type of work, uh, I would ask people what were the things that bothered them most. And I was able to kind of factor analyze them into, in one society you might call it one thing, in another, you might call it something else, but they all have the same physiological And Let's say you call it X in one culture, and you call it Y in another. But both will have, if it's a shame, you have a hot temperature, you have redness, and you have pro-inflammatory products. So you see, the culture will tell you how they're going to shame you, but your mind-body will respond the same way after you've been shamed. That's the best way to, to look at it. Um, an, an example of how a, a culture can shape uh, a one of the wounds, for example, shaming, is that you in a in, in Ireland, uh, use the example, you could be shamed by your father if you don't make the soccer team, and you could go to a, a Maasai village, and your father could shame you for not killing the lion when you were 14 or not doing the rites of passage when you were 14 or 15. Well. Although they're different contexts, the immune, nervous, and endocrine system respond the same way to the actual experience of shame. So the culture will shape how they do it, and your biology will respond the same way independent of the culture. So it's a biocultural process, and everyone will have the usual response of, uh, of hotness and uh, uh, turning red and and, and inflammation and so forth. So that's th those are examples of how uh, how a culture, um, how I studied the the wounds in the different cultures and, and was uh, really amazed to see the consistency of how your physiology responds, but how your culture shapes how your physiology is going to respond. So talk about how we can heal these three wounds and what embodiment, how embodiment 
uh, what role that plays. Okay, I'll take one, and, and, and you can apply the other two uh, just by using the same um, extrapolations. So for, let, let's say that you have a wound of shame, which is a very popular wound. It's a very, unfortunately, a lot of people have uh, shaming wounds. Now, the interesting thing about the shaming wound, or any of the wounds, is that not only does it happen to you, but you do it to others. And the reason for that is that you learn a wound by usually by someone who's important in your life, you from someone who's important in your life. A father, a mother, a teacher, or a mentor, uh, good or bad, but they're important. They have a, a high value uh, and high status in, in your world. So what happens? Let's say you have a father who shames you. And the only way you can connect with your father is to be shamed. Your father is the type of person that's always finding something wrong with you and criticizing you and shaming you in front of other people. So what do you do then? You compromise for the sake of love. You go to that father, not, not knowing me, and sometimes knowing me, knowing that you're going to um, be shamed, but that's the only way you can reach your father. So what happens? You wrap the wound of shame around love. So what I call the intimate language of love becomes an intimate language of shame in order to feel love. So what do you do? You look for a partner that you can shame or a partner who shames you. This is why you talk to people in, in marital therapy and say, this is my third, my third marriage and each one of them abandoned me. Well, it's because you, you're speaking the intimate language of abandonment. So you learn that. And you learn that uh, the people that are going to be able to speak to you are the ones who speak shame. And it's not, not a conscious thing. It's like the alcoholic will look for the alcoholic. It's a, it's a language. And you create co-authors, relationships, friends, and even places that you go to that have a shaming quality. And that becomes a very powerful thing in your life. It becomes your language. It becomes your, your capital, even though it's hurting you and, and, and causing you great pain. So, just like you learned a wound of shame, we'll stay with shame, you also learned, without knowing it, honor. Everyone has honorable behavior. Everyone has an honorable uh, experience in their lives. So, what do you do? It's a transformational process. It's not a replacing one data for the other. That's, that's computers. This is a transformation of meaning, and it's re a recontextualizing. So an example, you go to work, and obviously you have a boss who's going to be very shaming. And you get to, to, to the, you have a meeting, you get to the meeting at 8.05, and you're supposed to be there at 8, and your boss, who also speaks abandonment, uh, uh, excuse me, shaming fluently, will say, there you go again, I can all, always count on you of being late, in front of 20 people. So what happens? You begin to feel anger, because after, after you learn the wounds, you, you feel anger for all three of them. Initially, you, don't, you only feel anger with the, uh, with the uh, betrayal, but later, as you grow up, you uh, are angry by what you feel. So in that moment, you are dumping all your history of shame into that moment, and you feel overwhelmed, and sometimes you want to respond with anger. So what do you do? You stop, and you embody what's going on, which means that, and it only takes a few seconds, you embody what you're feeling. You notice that you're getting red, you notice that, that your stomach is tightening, that your words are coming out in a trembling way, and all these other emotions and all, the, all these other symptoms and manifestations. 
So you stop, you breathe, and then you bring in a memory, and you practice this at home before you do it, you bring in memories of honor. What is the honorable thing that I can do right now? What is the most honorable thing that I can do? And it could be that you say to your boss, I'm sorry I'm late, we'll talk about this later to see how I can correct the situation. Or after you, uh, the meeting, you call your boss and say, I'm not going to allow you to talk to me this way or whatever. Another thing about Moon is that you have to be brave. You have to be willing to take some of the consequences because you could, you could get fired. <clears throat> and I don't mean that you go to a boss and tell him, tell him off. Uh, I, I don't mean that. I mean that you have to stand your ground. And if you're working in a shaming environment that is actually killing you little by little, it might be worthwhile to give yourself six months to find another job. So then you go back to, again, the experience. What do you do? You, you embody the, the shame. You, you experience it. You have the felt meaning of the experience. And then you also embody what it is to feel honorable. And you remember that you were honorable when you were a little girl. And uh, you could have cheated on your test, but you didn't. And you decided to get a lower grade rather than cheating. An honorable behavior, you're going to feel. There's also a felt meaning of that. And then you bring that experience in. And your physiology will change immediately. It's almost like an alchemy. It'll change immediately. And one, you'll learn to experience honor. And two, you won't allow your body to take a hit. So we are wired for being ethical beings, it sounds like. Yes, we are. And yeah. that's a very interesting question. We are, we are just like we're predisposed for language. Uh, Chomsky pretty much uh, debunked. Skinnerian uh, psychology. Skinner thought that that we basically uh, learn our language by the type of reinforcement, the contingencies of reinforcement. And Chomsky was able to show that we're pre we have we're predisposed for a language. We have codes for a language that uh, are manifested in in China, in the United States, and in different places. But we have codes. And one of the ways that you can find out about the code, you notice that little children, no matter how you reinforce them. They think like uh, I want to go play for I can feel a predisposing language, but then you shape it gradually by it's not for it's so and so forth. But you see, you have predispositions, which means that you have a predisposed design for language. Mm -hmm. You also have a predisposed design for ethics, mm -hmm. and it's not Darwinian. It's not so you can get along. It's because meaning is more important than evolution. Mm -hmm. Once we develop consciousness, we no longer evolved in a Darwinian way. We exalted, which is different, we de developed. And there is some Darwinian processes going on, but it's not Darwinian. It's not so we can get along. It's so we can have meaning in what we do. Mm -hmm. Well, that's an important thing to... to you know, have a revelation about. Could you talk, you know, I think our listener would, li would like to know what the other, the antidotes are for the other three, the other two wounds. Uh, just like you did with shame, you would you would take abandonment, and the antidote, that's a good word, the antidote for, for abandonment is commitment. So let's use an example of commitment. You see, you take complex processes and you make them simple, you bring them down to earth so you can apply them. One of the problems that I have with a lot of the teachings is that they give you a lot of theory, a lot of platitudes, and no application. 
okay, this is nice, so what do I do with it? And you get lost. Biocognition is committed to applications and to bringing complex processes into simple, workable, life-saving kinds of, 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 of ways of interfe uh, interfering with, with the pathology and with whatever you're trying to change. So an example would be <coughs> you, are, you have an abandonment wound and you decide to go to lunch with a friend. You see how simple, simple things. And your friend tells you that she's going to be there at 12. And it's 12.05 and she's not there, and 12.15 and she's not there, and 12.20. And you begin to feel an overwhelming emotion. And you begin to play out without knowing it, and sometimes knowing it, all that history of abandonment, just because that person is not there. So what do you do? The same thing. You embody it. You see where it's manifested. If it's in your stomach, it's in your jaw, wherever it is. And then you allow yourself to breathe into that experience, to breathe and observe it. And then you would have practiced commitment uh, history. You would have practiced how many times do you remember when you did things of commitment and so forth. And you have that information already. You have that in your arsenal. And you come out and you say, okay, what am I going to commit myself to? What would be a commitment? I remember that I committed myself to, to take dance lessons and I did it. And it's always a commitment about something that you did. And it has nothing to do with the wound. It doesn't have to be a commitment related to the wound. Just commitment consciousness. So what you do is you make a commitment. What's the commitment? My commitment is that I'm going to let this person know that uh, I'm going to start eating. And when she gets here, I'm going to tell her that I started eating because she was late. Or I'm going to tell her that I wish that she could be on time and if she's not on time next time. Whatever it is, a commitment to something. Mm -hmm. Or if there's a person that every time you get together with that person and she's late or he's late for half hour or an hour, then what are you doing? You have a co-author of abandonment. Mm -hmm. So you have to reevaluate that friendship. You have to reevaluate and ask yourself, what is the point here with this person? Is it worth it? And sometimes it is. Sometimes it's worth it to be with people who are late. But is it worth it for me to co-author this type of thing, which is one of the wounds that I'm trying to fix? It's like if you're, if you're trying to give up cocaine and you go to a cocaine lab, it's very hard to give up cocaine in a cocaine lab. Well, it's the same thing. If you're, if you're trying to give up a wound, at first it's going to be fragile and you're learning slowly. So you want to be around people that are going to support commitment, mm -hmm. not people who are going to support abandonment. That's an example. The same thing with, with uh, betrayal. Betrayal is loyalty. Loyalty. Loyalty consciousness is the antidote to betrayal, which is a very difficult one to deal with, but it's workable. So how does diet play a role in all of this, Mario? For instance, we know that certain foods like caffeine and sugar are, are highly inflammatory and should be eliminated in the case of chronic inflammation like arthritis. Well, sure, uh, uh, foods have, uh, have an effect, but what happens is we have a diet consciousness, and diets don't work because they're based on deprivation, and diet foods don't work because they're based on making money keeping you fat or, or, or overweight. <laughs> uh, for example, diet, diet drinks have two things that they do. One is that they increase appetite. Number two, they deprive the liver of the metabolic process that it needs to burn uh, fat, so what happens is you drink more diet drinks to stay uh, thin, and you don't stay thin. Plus, you also have a um, kind of a pseudo uh, security 
about it because you're saying I'm drinking a diet drink, so I can eat almost anything. The other thing about it is that you're, you're depriving, deprivation increases the need. So instead of depriving yourself, what you do is you begin to change your consciousness, and what you do is you begin to fall in love with food. And again, that sounds like a paradox. How can you fall in love with something that you're abusing? Because you don't love food, you need food. And you abuse what you need, you don't abuse what you love. So you begin to love the food. What do people do when, when they have problems with, with, uh, with weight? They eat fast, they don't chew their food, they clean their plates, they go too long, um, they don't pay attention to the signal of, of, of fullness. You when, you when you feel full, that means that you've already eaten too much. Because the, 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 the brain and, and the stomach has a lag time. When the, when the stomach is full, the fullness information doesn't get to the brain immediately. So what do you do? You begin to eat and you always stay a little hungry and you'll see that within a few minutes the hunger will go away. But what do we do? What We abuse the things that, that, that hurt us. Mm. Why? Because we know we can't do it. And again, at the beginning of the, of the program we were talking about that freedom equals options. If you have an option taken away from you, even if it's a bad option, the value goes up because of the option was taken away from you. So the whole industry is set up for people to make a lot of money and for you to suffer. You just said a whole lot right there. <laughs> so I think that's very uh, insightful, the connection there. So in your recent work, you introduced the concept of the drift for navigating confusion and chaos. Could you explain what you mean by the drift? Yes, the drift is something that I talked about in my book, The, the Man from Autumn, indirectly teaching. The drift is kind of it's a non-linear process, and I don't want to get esoterical and uh, or new agey. I'm going to tell you exactly what it is. The drift, you see, we live in a world that's synchronistic already, and we bring linear order to that world in order to be able to understand the world. The brain is sequential. The right side is not sequential. The left side is sequential. So we bring sequence, and all of a sudden we go into some portal without knowing it, and that portal, you see this, oh, what a coincidence. And we call that synchronicity. Well, that's the drift working. That's the process of ongoing synchronicities that you're not tuning into because you're linear. Now, how do you create, how do you, you never go into the drift uh, consciously because it, by definition it's not a linear process. You can't say, okay, I'm going into the drift. What you do is, once you go into the portal of the drift, you realize that you're in. So you, you, you know you're in after you're in and not before. How do you create the drift? How do you create synchronicity? Meditation can do it. But for example, you could, you could create what's called a feed-forward event. I have to invent that word too, feed-forward. They use it in, in engineering, but uh, I, the way that I use feed-forward is an event that has value in the future but you can initiate it like a, like a, like a chaotic uh, butterfly effect. You can initiate it in the present. So an example, tonight I'm going out and I'm going to go celebrate a wonderful dinner not knowing what I'm celebrating. I have no idea what I'm celebrating, but I know I'm celebrating something. Then you wait for the, for the drift to unfold. Two days later, something happens and, oh, here it is. Now, some people will argue, well, you're just using correlations here. If I'm using correlations, you're still having a good time while you're doing it. It's like the people who say, 
Well, what if you, if you believe in God and there's no God? Believing in God, not in a wrathful God, but believing in a, love, a loving God, whether God exists or not, is actually good for your health. So, the drift has many, many ways of getting in, but you never try to get in. Another thing about the drift, the drift is undulations of, of synchronicity. It's just kind of like when you throw, some, uh, let's say, a, a, a stone in, a, in still water and you see the undulations. Those are the undulations of the drift. It's a, it's a way of, of uh, metaphorically talking about it. And one of the ways to go into a drift is to have faith in the moment. Something happens to you that's out of order. That's another thing. If it's out of order, there's a potential for a portal of a drift. Mm -hmm. If it's out of order and your car, you have a flat in the middle of traffic, it is very, very difficult to, to look for wisdom <laughs> in the middle of traffic with that kind of thing. But you stop, you embody what you're feeling. You always embody. You never tell yourself, I'm so evolved that I don't feel anything. You can never be too evolved to not feel. You have to feel. And then after you feel, it's okay. So what is the wisdom here? The wisdom, you're going to say, there's no wisdom. I'm going to be late for work. I'm going to have to get AAA to come and all these other things. But what is the wisdom in this? And you keep seeking and seeking and seeking. Faithful seeking. I call it faithful seeking. And I don't mean faith in the religion, but faith in the outcome. And you will find that what happened there had a positive event. It had the most auspicious possibility in the long run. Not in the short run. Mm -hmm. That's the drift. Mm -hmm. That's wonderful. So you wanted to, uh, you said something about the danger of joy. You want to speak about the danger of joy? Yes, uh, because joy, you have to have the worthiness to be able to accept it. But also what happens is the brain, the brain works by repetition. Anything that you repeat, it interprets as a need for conservation, whether you repeat good or bad. Cognition, what cognition does is it gives meaning to that repetition. So there are two codes. The brain code is repetition, and the code of the cognition is meaning, bringing in, bringing in interpretation. So you are used to working and making X amount of dollars. Let's say you make $30,000 a year. Your whole world revolves around the 30000 what you can do with the 30000 um, what you can spend, what you can't spend, and what happens is you create horizons around that. You create a horizon, and your biology will adjust to that horizon. All of a sudden, you're told, guess what? You're going to be making $100,000 a year. Well, that's a shock to the brain because that's non-repetitive. That breaks the order, mm -hmm. so it responds like an alarm. And if you don't have the self-esteem to accept that alarm, it turns into a negative alarm. And sometimes people actually get sick when they when they when they get a race or when they when they win the lottery they they, they get sick literally because they don't have horizons expanded enough that the more self-esteem the more flexibility with your horizon let me give you another example of how it happens at a cultural level when the uh, train was invented the train would go at blinding speeds of 35 miles an hour so 35 miles an hour is a lot faster than than than, than a horse so what was happening? Because the horizons of the culture only allowed you to go as fast as the horse, people began to have illnesses that they were called um, rail back disorder. They were having back problems and they called it rail back disorder because of the speed. 
once the culture adjusted to the, to the trains, that it was okay to go over 35 miles an hour, well, rail back disorder goes away. When Otis invented the, the elevator, the horizons are saying you have to take the stairs. You don't take some automatic thing and bring it up. People were having nosebleeds when they would go up on the elevators. How many people have nosebleeds now? The airplane, the horizons were that you don't really fly uh, fast on, on a tube with two, uh, with two wings. People knew about the airplane, but when you started flying, what happened? The, the vomit bag. How many people vomit now? So you see that once the culture desensitizes itself and it expands the boundaries or the, of the horizons, then it's okay. Same thing happens with, uh, with money, with love. Uh, and, and one experiment that, that your, your listeners could do is that they could go home and, and do a little relaxation. You always have to do a contemplation or a relaxation to, to bring down the nervous system so it'll let the new information in. Mm-hmm. And imagine what you're doing. Let's say you make an X amount of money. An amount of, uh, let's say you make $50,000. You're doing well. And you begin to think about, what do I do with the 50000 Well, I save so much, and I buy this, and I buy that. And, and, and you, you do the, the grounding of your, of your bubble, how far your bubble can go. And then all of a sudden, you stop and you say, okay, now I'm making $500,000 a year. And all of a sudden, you start thinking about what you could do. I'm going to buy a mansion. I'm going to go around the world. I'm going to give my friends this, whatever. And you do it for five minutes and stop, and you're going to feel you're going to feel stress somewhere in your body mm-hmm. because you've alarmed the system. Then the, the brain doesn't know that it, that it's not happening. Cognition knows, but the brain doesn't know. So what happens then? You breathe softly. You embody that uh, that process, and what you're doing is you're expanding the horizons and desensitizing yourself, or recontextualizing yourself more than desensitizing, <clears throat> into believing that you could reach. 500,000. Does it mean you're going to make 500,000? No. What it means is that you're open to do better than what you're doing right now Mm -hmm. without getting sick. So repetition and meaning then are the key aspects of biocognition, if I'm hearing you right. Yes, the repetition and the meaning. Because if you repeat alone, that's only cognition or, or repetitive behavior. But when you mix cognition, giving cognition the uh, the responsibility of meaning and giving the brain the responsibility of repetition, <clears throat> then what happens is that as you repeat, you look for meaning in what you repeat. You're not, not mm-hmm. repeating it blindly, mm-hmm. cognitively or biologically. Uh, so, for example, when they talk about affirmations, affirmations by themselves don't work. One way to for affirmations to begin to work is to embody them. You could say, okay, an affirmation... Uh, I'm a good person, I'm a good person, and you can say it a thousand times, and it's not going to change anything if you just say it, Mm -hmm. because what you're doing is you're affirming something intellectually that is not manifested in the body. So how do you work with an affirmation? You say, I'm a good person, and then you go to the body to feel the objection. Mm -hmm. The body says, no, you're not, you're not that good, look what you did yesterday, and you feel it, you embody it and you do it over and over again. Then what you do, and here's the biocognitive component, you look for evidence in the past that shows you that you're a good person. It's very evidence-based. Mm-hmm. Okay, I'm a good person. You embody the, the, the reaction to the, the the negation of it and, or the objection of it, and then you say, I'm a good person. Ye- yesterday, I opened somebody's door and I helped them with this, and 
Hmm, I'm a good person, but it's a felt meaning, not just an intellectual. And then you do it, and then you go to the co-authors who will allow you to be a good person. Because remember, when you learn a behavior, you're learning it with a co-author. You have satellites, like, like the moon and the earth. And just because the moon wants to change, the, the earth is not going to change, and vice versa. So be aware that you have co-authors who may not be ready to change when you're ready to change. So be patient and change your behavior, not theirs. Don't try mm-hmm. to change theirs, just mm-hmm. change you. Mm-hmm. And those people may fall away and new people yes. arrive. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. And, and that's why you have to have faith in, in, the, in the drift. An <clears throat> uh, in, in example, uh, you have a friend who all that friend wants to talk about is criticizing illnesses and death. That's all. That That's the repertoire of the person. And because you have a shared history, you, we met in the sixth grade and we've been friends for years and you have a shared history, you... In a, in a uh, routine way, you get together with that person once a week. And when you leave and you become aware of what you're doing, you leave drained. Mm. You leave with a negative sense or you leave afraid and you leave with an apprehension and, and a foreboding kind of feeling. Well, why? Because that's all you talked about. So you reevaluate. Mm-hmm. What is the point of being with this person? And if I'm with this person, how long can I handle them? And how can I modify that behavior? How can I... So they start talking, guess who died? Well, uh, let me tell you who was born. And you start talking about that. And then that person goes like, yeah, but you know, uh, such and such is sick. Well, let me tell you how healthy I feel today. And if you try that five, six times, the person continues to speak the language of, of uh, toxicity, then you know that that person is not doing you, uh, not doing you uh, good. It's not, not in your best interest. Yes. And you might either cut out the relationship or give it the amount of time that you can handle. Mm-hmm. and then let it go. That's it. Because yes. we don't know how much people can toxify us yes. and environments can toxify us by not, by not being mindful of what we do on a regular basis. Yes, yes. So again, it's being truthful with yourself, being honest with yourself about how things affect you and, and getting in touch with that and honoring yes. yourself, you know, because that's where You're it honest. starts, it sounds like, that you honor yourself, your own self, and your commitment to yourself, and that you're loyal to yourself. You show up for yourself. Exactly, and then you become a bioethical being, mm-hmm. and that bioethical being, in the, in, in the cognitive sense, has high correlation with health and longevity. Why do I say that? Because that's exactly how, how the centenarians are. Mm-hmm. And by the way, it's not genetics. Centenarians, uh, you can account for 35% genetics. Everything else is bioculture. Mm-hmm. So you're being authentic. You're being your authentic self. You're being authentic and you have to be willing to pay the price. Yes. The short-term price. It like sounds it. like a short-term yes. price. No. Short-term price. Oh, of course. Of course. Yes. Uh, it, it, they're not going to like it because they've been doing a dance yeah. for so long. And that can make you feel uncomfortable at first when people don't like you're setting a boundary. That's right. They don't like it. And and usually what they do, here's what's interesting, they feel the wound. For example, if you try to make them healthy or help them uh, go into health, they feel that you're abandoning them or you're shaming them, whatever wound they have. Instead Uh of saying, oh, I'll I'll go along with you. This is really good. Why? Because they're not aware of what they're doing for themselves. Yes. And uh, yes. and if you explain it, they say, "Oh no, that's just you know that doesn't mean yes. anything." I don't really mean that, <laughs> you know. But but they they're constantly into the uh, into, into the wounds and into yes. the intimate language of love, uh, contaminated by the wound. Yes, 
and they're identified with it, so identified that they're not able to have an observation or awareness of it. That's what I'm hearing you say. Exactly. Like they're not aware. It's not a mindfulness. And, and, and I don't mean mindfulness only, because mindfulness it means just mind, mind-body. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. Embodiment, uh, yeah, and, is and a very key feature. Yeah. <laughs> so, Mario, you have an upcoming lecture and workshop on November 30th and December 1st in L.A., so you're coming yes. from Uruguay, right? You live in Uruguay. Yes. So what do you teach in your lectures and workshops for professionals and the general public? The lecture is to introduce people to the language and the, the consciousness of uh, biocognition, the, the basics and, and defying the, uh, the myths of, of growing old and defying uh, the myths of uh, genetic helplessness. And then on the workshop, it's, it's for professionals and for people who are actually wanting personal development. And it's a full-day workshop teaching the methods, but also teaching the applications of the methods and ways to identify the co-authors and what you can do about it, how can you begin to change uh, working with the, with the archetypal wounds and working especially with the, uh, with the healing field. And then there's some exercises that we do that I call the five portals of health, which is looking at parts of the body that express certain types of, uh, of problems in, in a person's life. So there's quite a bit of application. Mm -hmm. and, and I take complex scientific language and, and put it into simple, applicable ways to change your life. You've mentioned this healing field a number of times. What is a healing field? Uh, if you have, a, let's say, a time-space, a time-space is what you share with yourself and other people. There's time and there's a space. And within that time-space, you have a uh, horizons. Uh, you you travel with those people to to work. You you get together with them. You have a like a bubble with horizons, and that field could be interacting within a culture that is toxic, or it could be inter interacting with a culture that is very uh, enhancing. And the bioinformational field responds the culture but you also have another bioinformational field that you relate to you have your own and you have your groups and you have the world so it's like uh, Venn diagrams within Venn diagrams and interacting within each other and when you get out of one culture is when you begin to see it you begin to see that uh, what you consider to be appropriate it's inappropriate in another culture and, mm -hmm. and it's like a new reality where that's mm -hmm. a bioinformational field mm -hmm. and your biology will respond to that bioinformational field an example uh, when you do things in a group, the bioinformational field, you usually have things that you share, good things, bad things, and that creates cohesiveness. Mm -hmm. And a good example of that is a, is a football team. They, they train together, they anguish together, they have, they have great uh, wins and they have great losses, and, and so you have a, a cohesiveness. In one study that was done that looked at actually what happened with a football uh, team, it was some, somewhere outside, in, outside Nashville, uh, the uh, coach came to the to the team. Here's an authority, and he said to the quarterback, who's an authority also, and then the team, um, be careful because if we fumigated the the field today, that's all he said. So the quarterback begins to show signs of toxicity. He, gets, he starts vomiting and starts uh, turning white. And another kid, and about four or five kids, and all of a sudden they. They're all having this kind of uh, reaction. They take him to the hospital. The toxicologist looks at him, and there's nothing toxic. 
they come back and the coach is very upset and goes over to the maintenance uh, director and says, what, what happened here? And he said, I meant to tell you I'm sorry, but we forgot to fumigate. <laughs> <laughs> but here's the bioinformational field. Mm -hmm. You, KG Styles, walking around and watching that, it won't happen to you because you're not coherent with that bioinformational field. You'll just see a bunch of kids vomiting, but you mm -hmm. don't fall into it because you're not cohesive with that field. Mm -hmm. So it's like you're not under the, the spell of that field or, or you know, the imprinting of that field. or Exactly. And that influence is very subtle, but it's biocultural and it can kill you. That's what voodoo uh -huh. uh, curses do. Uh -huh. uh, it's, it's a nocebo effect. Mm -hmm. uh, and if you are from another culture and they and they give you a uh, a curse, most likely it won't work unless you're a very suggestible person. But most likely right. it won't work. Right. You're not part of that bioinformational field, so uh -huh. it could be good or bad bioinformational field. Uh -huh. It's information shared by biological beings, bioinformation mm -hmm. that has consequences at every level, at the mind, at the body, and at the culture. Well, it's been an, uh, a wonderful speaking with you again today. Do you have anything more you'd like to share with us before we close, Mario? Well, I'd like to invite as many people as possible to come to L.A. and uh, and be able to experience this. One of the things that I tell people is that they think that these things are platitudes, come and get some evidence mm -hmm. at the workshops and at the lectures that I do. This time it'll be in, uh, in Los Angeles, but I do them all over. So uh, go to the website and, and stay in touch. We also have a lot of um, free articles that you can download uh, to learn more about biocognition both in Spanish and in English so my thinking is that, uh, that I'd like to leave with the sense that you have to break away from that sense of um, genetic helplessness uh, you have to break away from the uh, from the tribes that are toxic to you and begin to create subcultures that enhance the three healing fields commitment honor and um, loyalty, and uh, that's I think what I what I would like to share. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Mario. Thank you so much to you for the for, wonderful work you're doing. Oh, thank you. For more information about Mario Martinez, his work in biocognition, and upcoming LA workshop, please visit his website at biocognitive.com. That's biocognitive.com. Have a beautiful day, everyone. A warm mahalo. Thanks again for joining us, Mario. It's been a pleasure having you with us. Thank you so much.